Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, we welcome Christine Kaplan and Angela Stern, founders of Before You Think Productions and leaders in female-driven film projects. Before they met, both women enjoyed successful careers in entertainment. Angela for acting and writing, and Christine for working on Seinfeld and The Larry Sanders Show. Their collaboration began when they met at acting school, where the two of them rapidly developed the play Mama's Eggnog. The play quickly won recognition as a finalist in the Samuel French Off-Off-Broadway Short Play Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, among others. Today they are making Mama's Eggnog into an indie film and bringing their deep understanding of the entertainment industry to other female-led film and TV projects. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Christine Kaplan and Angela Stern. Thank you for agreeing to come and be interviewed. There are so many things we need to talk about because we really want to talk about the most amazing project you're working on, but we'd like to start at the beginning. And I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that you, Christine, are a native Californian. No, actually, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. You were? I didn't know that about you. Oh, this is going to be good. Yes. And then when I was seven, we moved to Oregon. But all my relatives are still back east. What caused you guys to move from Pennsylvania to Oregon? My dad got a job in Oregon. We moved there because of that. And it was... um, it was a big change, actually. Do you remember moving little. from there? Were you old yes. enough to remember? I remember I had an accent, um, so I, I was teased quite a bit. And was it you know, a was it a Eastern Pennsylvania accent, like a let's go down the ocean kind of accent? I what think was it, it was um, ours. I think there's like the thirteen daughter. Uh, yeah. Yes. Daughter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then also we had different lingo. We said soda. Um, for pop. Everyone used to say pop. We said soda. <laughs> At seven, it matters, yeah, right? All those things as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Where do yeah. you fall in your family? Are you an only child? I'm a middle child. Oh, so not only did you move at seven, but you're a middle child. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Says it all. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So you came out to Oregon, and yes. how long did you live there? I lived there until I went to college, and I went to school in the Bay Area, Santa Clara, and I never went back. So my family moved to Florida after that, and I stayed in California. So I've been here 30 years. Now, somehow so. along the along your path, you got interested in film and television. So I was a television major at school. They didn't have film back then. And when I graduated, I got my first job in Los Angeles. I was a writer assistant for Beauty and the Beast. So I moved down here by myself. I guess it was kind of scary. And I've been here ever since. How old were you when you got that job? 20 to 22. That's a big thing. Yeah. Uh, That's um, a big – there must have been other people competing for that job as well. Well, they say now a writer's assistant job is pretty coveted. I suppose it was back then. I don't think I realized that. So I was lucky and I got it through a a friend that had graduated from Santa Clara 
couple years before. But you at Santa Clara probably had some sort of proving ground within what you were doing as a student, right? Yes. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. Always? But as a woman and also I think the way I was raised, I never had the confidence. So when I came to L.A., I think I did have opportunities, so I was lucky. But I never um, promoted myself the way that I would tell my daughter today or my children that believe in yourself and from the get-go, if you want to be a director, even if you don't want to be a director, tell everyone you want to be a director because what you put out there is what people – that's how they see you. Mm-hmm. So like I positioning Positioning yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was not something you understood at the time. No. I wound up being a script supervisor. That was what I did for about 10 years, which was a great job, and I'm not knocking it. But I always felt like I wanted to do more and be creative and have more responsibility. But I didn't get there because I didn't believe in myself enough. It would be different today. So when did you guys meet? When did we meet? Mm-hmm. We met in 20... 20- 2011. Oh, wow. Um, so fairly recently, eight, eight yeah, years. Eight yeah, years. we met at um, the Ruskin School of Acting where I had just – I had a infant at the time and left my job and my corporate job and said, I want to act again. So I went um, and found a class and Christine was in it. And I think pretty much from the get-go, we started working together. Like one of our first scenes was together, right? Yeah, and then, yeah, that's how we got to know each other. And Ruskin's a Meisner school? Yes. Can you guys tell us what, what Meisner's about so the audience understands sure. that a little bit? You, you want me to feel that yeah. one? <laughs> um, Sandy Meisner was uh, a teacher who um, founded um, a great school in New York, and he was notorious for being a little bit harsh, a little rough around the edges. But <laughs> that's, his... <laughs> that's the nice way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of sugarcoating. Yeah. Um, but he worked with a lot of very famous actors and the principle behind Meisner is that you don't do anything on stage until someone else makes you do it. So basically you're taking all of your inspiration off the other actor and allowing them to move and create emotion in you. It's a great way to work and we still work that way. And both of you in 2011 were both with children. You'd had, you'd had three kids at that point and you had at least one. I had two at that at point. point. Yeah. Which is so both of you made a decision at that point in your lives where you were early moms to go back into doing something that you love doing and yeah. to spend time doing that. Mm-hmm. Is that. Was that always a passion of yours? I grew up acting. I went to UCSB and got my uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting. I've been on a stage most of my life in the adult world of L.A. I tangented off into doing corporate jobs, et cetera. And then when my kids came along, all of a sudden something stirred in me that I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do, that I wasn't doing what I loved. And I knew I needed to get back to it. So I thought I'm just going to dip my foot in with the class and see where it takes me. When you guys met, did you sort of – excite each other in the sense that you were you were kind of sort of in the same place and you were getting into something that's like different risky was that also your first time in the class did yes. you meet Cohen's you both started at the same time we started at the same time I think you came in just a little bit later like maybe but, two months later yeah, yeah. Um, 
And I was in the class really because I was trying to challenge myself as a person to I'm shy to come out of my shell and to connect with people. So that was why I joined the class. I remember Angela joining the class and I was sort of drawn to her, but also thought there was a person that I would not get along with. <laughs> I love that. Isn't it always the case though? I mean, yeah. many times that you, there's a person that you're repelled by, but attracted yeah. to and bothered by in a way. Absolutely. It's so interesting, right? Because uh, we are very different. Angela's so much, I would say, freer <laughs> than myself and confident and liberal and passionate, all the things that I'm not. Not that I'm not liberal, but so anyway, we're great. Yeah, we could not be more different. And in in a lot of ways, we couldn't be more different. But in a lot of ways, we're extremely similar in how we look at life or handle situations. But we we definitely – sometimes Christine looks at me and she's like, oh, God, what are you doing? (laughs) And were you both taking these classes because you wanted to get work in the space and get get paid for what you were doing? Or was this in in either – you take that. Was that something you were trying to overcome the things that you just said? I actually wasn't planning to act. So I wasn't thinking that I was going to leave the program and and become an actor or uh, have that as a career. But then I fell in love with it, uh, acting, and – it's incredibly therapeutic and it's really made me, I think, a better person. So uh, I would I would tell every person to take a class yeah. if it's the right one, especially Meisner. Can anybody get in or do you have to be accepted into the school? Oh, no. I think um, the way that John Ruskin had structured it was that it was open to anyone, including non-actors, because – there's a it sounds sort of hokey, but there's a spiritual component to Meisner training because it's all about being present. And that to me is the beauty of it, is because it teaches you to be present in your own life, not just on stage. So I think it it is very therapeutic for, for anyone. It's so interesting because it's a human acting is a human art. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, in a way, learn how to be a human by the exercises and the practices and the, the rules of the road that are established. Yeah, It returns you to that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Meisner's very improvisational, actually, right? Because you're face-to-face with another unpredictable human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> how does it feel when you first start doing it? I mean, because you had not done acting before. What was that For like? me, it was – we do something called um, – What's it called? Uh, repetition. Repetition, where you, you you're in a circle and and you're basically just uh, reacting off the other person, mm-hmm. and you might repeat what they're saying, but you're definitely trying to find out what's in their soul, what's bothering them that day, what where their strengths are, where their weaknesses, and that was always really difficult for me, and it made me feel very vulnerable. Uh, so. It's tough wow. because it, you feel ridiculous, or because you feel vulnerable. Like, I mean, vulnerable, of course, but like, you have to be really open about who you are and why you're reacting a certain way, or and you get self, you get defensive. Um, people call you out on something. People always cry because if you're good at it, you can really get to someone. Um, wow! Wow! 
sort of sounds like a love hate thing going yeah, on. Yeah, 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 for sure. Wow. Yeah. So you're so is this like a one night a week kind of thing you were doing, or was this something that had required more of your time? It was twice a week. And I think class was three or four hours. Yeah, it was usually about four hours. And did people come there to watch you perform and dis- determine whether or not they want to cast you in a role for something? From or time this- to time. Um, there was um, presentations at the end of, you know. Like showcases? Yeah, kind of. we would do scene showcases yeah. or whatever. And then John's very good about getting um, the community in. There's there's a lot of good relationships he has with casting directors, with um, – actors who come and teach from time to time. So yeah, there's some exposure that way. Um, But I think for the most part, the goal of the program is to improve as an actor. Yeah. So when did you start collaborating on material? When we graduated, when did we graduate? 2013? 2014. Yes, 2014. A confluence of events, excuse me, I'm hitting my mic, um, happened. Uh, in 2014, my mother passed away. And we were uh, also writing in class at that time. So all the actors were writing their own scenes. And we had a teacher at the same time, Karen Landry, um, who was the most amazing, beautiful soul on the planet, who was mentoring us through the um, writing process. And somewhere in that little space of time, I started to create what is now Mama's Eggnog. So when we graduated, um, Christine also then lost both her parents. And this script that I was working on started to speak to both of us as an incredibly important topic. And we had discussed previously when we were done working together on something. And then we just said, this is it. This is the this is the script. This is the theme. And this is what we need to be doing. So – from this German of idea, both of you were having varying degrees of grief at that time, which is such an overwhelmingly powerful emotion on every level. Uh, my mother's dead for 30 years. I feel like she died a minute ago. And, um, you know, that's what happens and you carry that forever. So from that experience that you both went through and you got on this path, which we'll talk in much greater um, extent on what, this, what the thematic is of Mama's Eggnog, you caught this idea. Do you guys write together? I do most of the – right now I do most of the writing for this project on my own. However, it is largely um, workshopped. So when we go to the script and we take it to the table and we read it all together or we put it on its feet, we all edit and work on it and come up with different ideas and throw things in and um, improve it basically. Mm-hmm. So, Can I stop you for yeah. a second? Can you describe to our audience um, table reads and workshop and what that what that looks like? Sure. When I get it, when I go to the computer and I sit down and I write a draft of whatever we're working on, it could be a scene, it could be the whole thing. We then sit down together as a group and get actors in each role, and we sit down at the table and we literally read it at the table to mm-hmm. see how it sounds coming off the page. Mm-hmm. Once we feel like it's got some meat to it, then we start putting it on its feet and moving it around and staging it and seeing if there's anything really great there in the in the actuality. So, right. And yeah. so your point earlier is really about hearing the words coming out of the mouths of actors. Yes. And ha- looking at each other and either giving a thumbs up or going, wow, that doesn't mm-hmm. say what I want it to yeah. say. Yeah. Because I can write a joke in the privacy of my own home and crack myself up 
and then bring it to somebody else. And they'll be like, that wasn't funny, <laughs> you know. So yeah, it takes. Well, did that. you have any prior experience? Are you Christine? Did you have any prior experience writing, or when you went to this classes, you guys had this as, as part of the. I'm guessing the overall program of being in the experience of being in a Meisner-led universe, I guess, would be. Yes, I think uh, when Karen came along, it was her idea to have us write. Uh, it wasn't really part of the program at that time, but I, f- I think uh, well, Angela already had some, you know, was a writer, but that was when I started to really love the class was being able to uh, – and I think it was because you can work out a lot of personal things on the page. And then – so that was – I didn't expect to write, but it became the best part of the class for me. It's really interesting because you were script super- supervisor. So like structure it was like sort of in your in your bones because you've been – Supervising stories. That's so interesting. I think uh, working in production for so many years, I i have a really good sense of story and uh, what's funny as well. And so I do think I'm a great editor. And um, so that's definitely been helpful. You also supervised, did script supervision for some of the best television shows of all. You talk a little bit about your work in that space because it would be sad not to talk about some of the people that you worked with. Well, I feel very blessed to have worked on Larry Sanders, the Larry Sanders show. with Just one of the great shows of all time. Just passed away not too long ago. I think it's been a couple of years, I think. Uh, That show was – he was brilliant. And one thing that was so great about Gary is he included everyone. And it might have been because he's somewhat neurotic. But uh, from what I've learned from his friends after now going to the memorial, his memorial and all that, is that he is just – he was just the most um, – he he just uh, built everyone up that he liked. I mean, he, was, he could be tough. So if he didn't like you, that's another story. But he was so brilliant – Included everyone in the creative process, so I that was by far my my favorite experience, and I learned so much being on that working on that show. And then I went to Seinfeld, and Larry David <laughs> you went was, from one brilliant guy. Yes, to <laughs> so then I had Larry David, and 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 to, you know, to, to amazing people I got to work with. What and, is the job of a of a of a script supervisor. What does that mean exactly? So it's not exactly what it, it sounds like you're a writer, but you're actually on the crew and you um, you are taking notes for the editor. You're making sure the show is is uh, the time the, – you're timing the show and make sure it's, it's, it's um, not running long. You run lines with the actors. You – Tell the sound people when there's a change. You make sure everyone knows if there's a change that affects, you know, their cue. So you're you're on the crew, but you're working with everyone. It's like between production um, on the set and production after being on the set. I mean, it's like the catcher <laughs> in the rye. <laughs> that right, right. It's uh, you mean as far as you're a hub. Well, yeah, you're 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 like sort of making making sure that uh, you know. For example, if you're not to time, 
you go, have to go to the writers and go, the scene yes. is running long. How can we change it on the fly, right? And so you're the person who brings that news to people and then carries it around into the whole organization on the set. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. So, so you're sitting, but you're you're there on the front line watching this play out, if you will, and you're sitting there and making the amendments and changes on an as needed basis. So you're right in the, the hub of it. Yes, when you have that job. So you're, it's also it must be very exciting, and also I imagine quite stressful. It was a, it is definitely a stressful job, um, and you know every time you tell someone that works in production that you were a script supervisor, like ah, oh, the hardest job on the set. <laughs> <laughs> is that a union so, job? Yes. So, um, uh, yeah, it's a tough job. But the whole time I was, for the most part, it you don't speak as a script supervisor so much. You're watching a lot, and I felt um, frustrated. I felt like I wanted a voice and um, so I would say for me that was the only frustrating part about being a script supervisor was having to be silent when I wanted to go and say that I, I think this would be this would be better or this would be more funny or why don't you do this? I would love to transition to the connection um, yeah. so between you know you were a script supervisor on some of the most hilarious <laughs> and smart and and consistently hilarious and unusual story structure type shows right Larry Sanders Seinfeld um, with people who liked playing inside of that story idiom right so you have a front row seat to that you go into um, Meisner you guys have a teacher who wants you guys to write you begin writing a story that's very personal suddenly it becomes very relevant to you as well your background, your mother is from Trinidad and Tobago right. and West Indies. And your dad's from Macedonia? Yeah. That's very interesting. Like yeah. the the stuff of your story must be very juicy and interesting. Yeah, I grew up in a unique household <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Are you right. an only child? No, I'm the last of four. Um we used to refer to ourselves as Macedonians. <laughs> Only four Macedonians on the planet. Um, but my father passed when I was seven. So I was raised largely by a single mom. So, um, yeah, but it was an interesting household. My mom was absolutely the loudest mother on the block to this day. People are like, I remember your mom. I could hear her walk out the front door and scream, Angela, at the top of her lungs. But it was it was a, it was a, a unique journey and I definitely felt like a little bit of an oddball in school. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And you're very quiet. So like here's this person who grew up in a loud house with this person who's very quiet but who is around comedy. So you come together as writers. It's very interesting DNA. Yeah. I mean absolutely Christine's background as a supervisor has been essential in developing this story. She's the one who comes to me with I feel like this character needs this arc or I feel like the, this isn't going somewhere. This is um, needs a little bit more definition. So throughout this whole process, she has definitely been hands-on with the structure of the story and been brilliant at it. Yeah. I want to hear about the story. Um, like I said, my mother passed away in 2014. And when uh, my siblings and I had her cremated and got her ashes back, um, we had this moment where uh, we had her ashes in, in the – living room and we were pulling her out and investigating the remains and all very morbid but 
hilarious the entire time we were just making jokes and laughing and a little poof of my mom went up into the air and landed on my sister's hand and without thinking twice, my sister licked her hand and we all went, what did you just do? (laughs) And then within 10 minutes, each of us was like, well, what is it? What does that taste like? Because it was just such a bizarre thing to get your mom back in a box. So the story then came from that. So the actual script is about three siblings who witness the cremation of their mother. They receive her ashes back um, on Halloween and they proceed to spend the rest of the holiday season arguing over the fate of mom's ashes. Uh, My character wants to return her home to her native country of Trinidad and Tobago and the other two siblings are adamantly opposed to bringing her back and they struggle for the entirety of the holiday season deciding what we're going to do with mom. And that's basically Uh it in a nutshell. (laughs) So you guys sat down together and were you both the writers? I was the writer. Christine was, I would, I would say pretty much a script supervisor. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Did this story speak to you as well? Yes. I produced at the time a Christmas show at the Ruskin Theater where it was eight short scenes, all with the theme of Christmas and the holidays. And um, it was a fundraiser kind of community building event. We did it for three years. And we pulled one of those scenes from Mama's eggnog and and put it on its feet. And I acted in it with Angela um, and another friend, Josh Drennan. And it just spoke to me from the beginning. So I felt completely comfortable in that role. And it was easy to to get emotional when I needed to because at the time even more dealing with my parent the loss of my parents so it yeah it spoke to me from the very beginning this is like a whole like a uh, deep emotional journey for both of you and many people i mean people we all you know theoretically unfortunately it's much better to bury better your bury your parents than your parents burying you which my mother buried my brother it's a horrible experience to lose a child so it's not that we want to lose our parents but that's the way it's supposed to be yeah. So you both went through this experience where you both were motherless children and uh, now you're a mother and fatherless child Mm -hmm. and you had this deep emotional attachment to this and you made this film. Now let's talk about the process of actually writing it and getting it to the place where I've seen the film. Well, I've seen the play, Mm -hmm. which you're now trying to turn into a film. So talk about getting it from the script to getting it cast and getting it into – the, into uh, the form where you made it a play first and let's walk through that journey. So brief history of the play. The short play um, went to the Samuel French Off-Broadway uh, Play Festival in New York a couple of years ago and was one of the 30 finalists out of 1,500 entries, wow. which was the record for them at that time. So that was a boon for us and we all went to New York and performed in it. Got to have our first off-Broadway performance, which was fantastic. And then um, it got picked up and went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And this is just the short version of the play. And then was done at the City Lights Festival in Miami. So the short play has been all over the place. I was in the process of finishing the play script and the film script concurrently. And the play script got accepted as part of the Plays in Progress series with the Athena Project in Denver, Colorado. So the full-length play then went and had its first trial run in a sort of glorified staged reading in Denver last year. And we um, decided from that point that we were in really good position to make the film. The story was going over with everyone and we loved where we were. 
So we said we're going to do this and we hired a director and we started fundraising and we got, you know, our – Did a crowdfunding. Did a crowdfunding. Um, We managed to gain some investors along the way and right about, what, October, November last year, we were kind of stuck in the mud a little bit. We went, what do we do now? We said, let's try the story for real on stage. Let's get it up. Let's put it on stage. Let's see how people respond to it to see if we keep going to make this film because it's a monumental task. And so we did. We staged it at the Edge Bar in Santa Monica over Christmas time. We sold out every show. Mm-hmm. We had an amazing response from the people who came out. And so did you make any money on it? We did actually, which was rare. I mean a little bit, but um, rare in a theater. You're yeah. always going to So when you're doing something like this, when you take it from paper to being performed, you guys are sitting around. You're finding lighting people, costume people, furniture for the sets and everything. So the process of all of that was new for you, Christine. I'm guessing that was – was that your first walk in it was, being a producer? I think that's why I said, hey, let's let let's, uh, let's put this on its feet. Let's, let's do the play. Uh, because I knew nothing. <laughs> Get her smile. <laughs> and then as we started gathering the props, building the set, I I had no idea how much work it, it would be. Because every single thing needs we, to be thought about. Because we didn't have a budget, a, a very large budget, almost nothing, we had to do everything ourselves and act in it. So uh, – and we had about how many weeks to pull it off? Wow. Less than six. Less wow. than six. Yeah. From, be, from the deciding from, to do it until yeah. the, at the actual performance yes. was six weeks? Yes. Yeah. Edgemar wow. is good for that though. Edgemar is a really great place because it's – the location is mm-hmm. very convenient for the right people. Yeah, it yeah. really is. It really is. Yeah. And they, they understand these kinds of productions. Do you um, rent the place from them? Is that how that goes? Yeah. yeah, you rent the space So that you rent a building that has a stage and pretty yes. – and some dressing rooms. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much, that's yeah, it. That's and it, then yeah. from that minute on, you have to do everything: the doors, the walls, yeah. the and everything. The, yeah. It's so yes. fascinating. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What Michelle Danner's a friend of mine, so I've watched this happen with other productions. Who was your say her name? Her name is Michelle Danner, and she's an acting coach. Yeah, yeah she, she actually came and saw our show. Which um, I don't know if she does see all the productions there. She might because she's so intimately involved. But she was lovely afterwards. Really. Uh, Really enjoyed it. She so. loved the show. Yeah, I asked was, her before oh, I came. Really? Yeah, she loved the show. She was great. Yeah. Did yeah. you do casting for your for all the roles in it? <laughs> we, oh, we're we, did, we did a <laughs> small casting session. Uh, we needed uh, the character's name was Pedro and uh, my husband in the, in the um, in the play, and we needed uh, um, Angela's mother's yeah. character, which uh, but in a in a, as a young person, so. Um, a few people came out. I have. I hope they're not listening, but they're not great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then we well we went back to Ruskin, and we asked uh, John and Mikey. I think we asked them, yeah, um, for some recommendations, and and then that's how we found our. So you guys both are here again. I mean, you're both moms. You both have a life, and all of this is a big, time-consuming project. This is not, you know, just a little. Oh, let's get that done. This must have been clearly a labor of love because neither one of you made any money on it. So clearly a labor of love. So now you got you have a little buzz. You got things going on. You got into the finals of a film of a. um, Is it? I guess is that a film festival or a play festival? Theater festival. Uh, Well, there were a few things. The um, 
Denver was a theater festival, but the script itself was a quarter finalist in the in the um, final draft big break screenwriting competition last year. So that was kind of a nice little pal. Is your the back first too. thing that you've written? No, I mean, I've written for most of my life, but most of what I write, I wrote a novel, um, which I just dusted off the other day, thinking oh, I really should try to get this published. Um, and then I've been I write for. Um, Websites I write for screenpicks.com and I write for FF2 Media, which is a um, uh, website dedicated to women in film. So I've been a reviewer and an interviewer and a commentator for a long time on that. Um, And then I've written several plays um, and films. I've written – this is my second actual screen play, but – bunches of shorts and things like that. So I've been writing for a long time. So what stage are you at? You, you've picked a place to shoot. You're going to shoot in Ashland. Is that because you grew up in Ashland or how did Ashland become the uh, Ashland, Oregon for the audience? We we went up to uh, visit Angela's friend who was a director, Gary Lund- Lund- Lundgren, and he lives in Ashland and works out of Ashland now. And I had never been, although I grew up in Oregon, I I never uh, had been to Ashland. And I just think when we got off the plane, we all uh, felt like this was – this was the right setting for the the play – I mean the the screenplay. It was Mm -hmm. just – it's kind of moody and that suits the story. It's also yeah, isn't Ashland my nephew for some who's an actor for some reason spent a lot of time in Ashland. They have the Shakespeare a big commu- festival. That's, yeah, he did the Shakespeare mm-hmm. festival. And they have a film festival too. My husband's short film just got in. Yes, that's oh, wow. right. Oh. Yeah, it's um it's a gorgeous little town. It's quirky, it's perfect at the holidays, which is when we're, you know, our story goes from Halloween through New Year's. The leaves are changing. It's just an incredibly little gem. It's it is a gem and our filmmakers, our director and um, his wife have been making films up there for a long time and they have really great really relationships in the community, which while you're making a film, relationships are everything. It's, it's a big that. deal. I don't yeah. think that anybody really understands how big it is to make a film, you know, with everything from budgeting to acting to problems that happen along the way. I mean, my husband's been in and out of the business for years and years and years and when they're in a project, it's all consuming. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very hard, much harder than it appears to be. It seems kind of sexy on the outside. And then you get into it and it's just hard freaking work is what it is. It is. And and you have to, you know, th- there's ups and downs, uh, the, especially when, for me, this is my first film. So it's a learning experience. And so you have to learn not to ride the highs too too. Too much. Yeah, they come smack you right <laughs> off of that horse. Yeah. 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 Boom, done. <laughs> and you just you have I you just never give up. Do you think yeah. that it is, you know, talking a little bit about when we were preparing for this today, uh, we were talking about being a woman in this business. Are you guys having seeing any of the old traditional obstacles or is that uh, those days behind us now? I think that I've never been more inspired in my life by what's going on with women in film right now. Never. I think it's incredible. And so many brave women have broken amazing ground for us. And to them, I'm really thankful. We have a long way to go. We really do. There still is like a little bit of that unspoken bias. Um, The trust that people place in a woman behind the camera is not fully there yet. 
there's um, like just look at the Oscars, for example. You know, we had a we had every one of the technical categories was completely populated by men when there were brilliant women out there, including the woman that directed. Um, Can you ever forgive me? You know, so it's we're breaking ground, but we're still at that place where that trust factor of letting a woman run something being behind the helm isn't quite there yet. So for Christine and I, I think it's like, well, we're just doing it. Yeah. So you're going to have to trust me. Well, what I, what I feel too, is you have a male director, you're holding hands with the guys. You're, you're like, we're coming to this point, not this point. It's not about one being over the other. It's Mm -hmm. about pulling out the gifts of all and acknowledging them appropriately. Right. Uh, You put it brilliantly because I was thinking about that the other day. It's not, Women aren't trying to su- succeed to the exclusion of men right now. We're trying to stand beside each other and say we all have merit and we all have something to say. And if a man behind the camera for this one is the right fit, then that's the decision we make. And Gary is the right fit for mm-hmm. this film. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a female-driven dr- mm-hmm. project, we feel strongly that his eye is the one that we want on this material. right. right. So it's about equality, yeah. I guess. How are you casting? You're casting on the coast or are you casting in Ashland or all of the above? Like what's the – are you going to be in it yourselves? Like what's the – Well, at this point, we are in the film uh-huh. ourselves um, and we will probably do some of the casting up in Ashland. We also – Depend, uh, depending on how much money we raise at the end of the day, as we get closer to the shoot date, uh, we may make the decision to try to bring in a name, uh, which would be great for the film. So that is a goal of ours. We uh, would love to attach an actor that's recognizable to the film. Uh, so it's still up in the air. Those decisions are still being made, but that that's pretty much where we're going with it. That being said... We also made the decision that instead of waiting around for people to to cast us, we were going to go ahead and I do love that. that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, the the subject matter is so um, relevant right now because there are so many. Pe- there are more people over fifty than in, in any other single group. It's the largest population in the U.S. at least, and we're all going through exactly the moment that the that the screenplay covers. Right, like many right. of us are. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately lost my parents very young because they had me older. But mm. it's so it's so relevant. So the story should be out there. Why should you wait for the story to come yeah. forward, right? Yeah. I love that. I love this yeah. sort of the double whammy of female-focused and that sort of taking the reins of making the thing be born into the culture, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, can you talk about, before you think, productions and the other initiatives that you guys are contemplating or engaged in right now? We are – Completely dedicated to getting women's voices out there. Um, Christine has the next project is going to be largely Christine's idea, which is a fantastic idea. And um, working title on that is the Holiday Inn Express. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you can tell us what you're doing. Again, I'm drawing from personal experience and it relates to loss. So – we seem to have that theme, but we're going with it. Basically, when I lost my – when my parents fell ill, they lived in Dallas at the time, I flew back there and they had sold their house. So it was closing in a week when my mom got the diagnosis of cancer and there was nowhere to go. 
So we, I closed up the house. She was in the hospital and I had to find a place for my parents to live. They had been planning to move to Palm Spring, but she couldn't travel because she was very ill and on oxygen. And I found a suite at the Holiday Inn Express. A suite? <laughs> yeah, they gave me a suite. It was a top floor. I got to tell you, the Holiday Inn is really nice. First of all, I think they're going to wind up giving me some money for this film because <laughs> – I'm going to promote the heck out of that. We got to make that happen. Yeah. We got to figure out how to help you hook that up. That's yes. not hard to do. No. Yeah. That's not hard to do. We moved into the Holiday Inn. My move uh, my I had I had to put my father into an assistant living place and and then my mom was discharged from the hospital and we we lived up there. I was there a few weeks and my sister flew out, my brother and we were all in there. And it was hilarious cuz my mom was dying. She was seriously like sitting at the table throwing up not to be graphic but and the siblings were standing over her fighting not about her just about childhood everything <laughs> i didn't like you when you did that when you were 8 you did that to me and we're screaming and and there she is just she's just sick as hell watching reruns probably <laughs> of her family i just kept going yeah but mom doesn't this like isn't this kind of comforting? It's like <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is sort of a screwed up way it is. Right? Yeah, it's got to be a little bit. Anyway, it's sort of based on that. Uh -huh. um, I, when it sounds the base the way you're telling it, it sounds like it's humorous. It's oh, it definitely yeah. has definitely humorous. You That's have to funny. have it. I don't think you can deal with this story like that without humor. And just like in life, when you're going through something tragic. You have to be able to laugh. Well, this is also very timely, you know, based upon what Leandra said, she's right. The largest population is us. Mm -hmm. And we're all now experiencing losses in different forms. I mean, all of the, all of us lost our parents when we were all relatively young. And I was in my 30s when my mother died and had a very tragic death, which is, you know, sort of makes it worse because it's jarring. Like yeah. you don't expect that to happen. I haven't decided in my life which is better, to know that somebody's going to die and to have time to prepare for it or to lose them abruptly because both of those things have a different mm -hmm. kind of impact on you. Yeah. Uh, and over a long period of time, you don't know which one is worse, but not. But the loss and what you're talking about is so profound when people who you care about, you don't really think in terms of them leaving you and then they do. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then you have to figure out what it is without them and then, of course, it happens to all of us. Yeah. And the circle of that is, um, you know, the great the great mystery of life, right, is why do we – why is this happening? But uh, I love the fact that you have humor in it and I can see already, you know, the, the arguing – the bickering. Mm -hmm. There used to be a TV show on in the 50s called The Bickersons. Oh, gosh. And that's what it was. It was a constant amount of bickering that went on between people, not really arguing but just me, me, me. And I think that to add to it was, was my mom decided – that she no longer wanted to be married. Oh wow! When she got sick, really? Yes. So that also was incredibly stressful. So your father was sick, your mother was sick, and your he mother decided he, she didn't want to be married anymore. That's right. He wasn't. <laughs> you can't make that up. No. How old were they? Absolutely. Seventy. She was seventy-five. He was seventy-eight. So she never wanted to see him again. So we were dealing with her terminal cancer diagnosis, the fact that – and then it was an incredible 
difficult time in my life, yeah. very difficult. Was there a particular moment that prompted her to decide she didn't want to be married anymore? I think when she got that diagnosis, she's like, I never want to see you again. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, we interviewed That's your funny. friends who, who the, the husband and wife married for 60 years and he came out of the closet at 78? No, 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 no. no. He How was, was he? Uh, like 89. 89. Oh, God. And, um, it, it has such a horrible, profound impact on the surviving children. Because yeah. really, did you need to tell us at 89 that you were gay and that you never had sex with our mom except for the two times when you had sex with us and we were born? Uh-huh. And uh, you've been hiding this your whole life and you decided at the end of your life to do this? It, and the impact on the family was amazingly devastating. I think it's not uncommon. I think it's more common than we understand that people come to a certain breaking point and just are like, that's it. Also, just having experience, when you experience your own loss, it's it changes you and you decide, I'm not going to live my life this way. I, I, things are going to change. But sometimes you have to experience that loss to get to that place. Mm-hmm. And so I could imagine that if you get a diagnosis... It's even that more powerful of, nope, I only have a short time to live, so this is how I'm going to live it. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Goodbye. So that's what... That's what it was. In your family dynamic, are you the the center, the touch point? I am. I'm. I, I think because uh, I don't know why, but I am, and so I. It's things tend to fall on my shoulders, mm-hmm. and you have to carry the weight of these decisions. They yes. How did your dad yeah. react to your mother's uh, line in the sand? He said, "Well, you uh, um, reap what you sow." So he took responsibility for yes. her. Wow. Wow. But it was sad. It was sad. How long? Who, who passed away first? But three months after that happened, he got a diagnosis of also they both had lung cancer and, and he passed away first. And they never reconciled after your mother said, I'm never going to see you again. They never saw each other again, even when he died? Actually, when he, he came out to UCLA hospital and he died at that hospital at the hospital, but I, I actually forced her to go see him. And so she did see him before, before. He what was that away. like? Sad. I mean, it's, it was sad. Oh, boy. were you there? She, yes. She walked in and he said, Oh, you look so beautiful. Of course she was like bald. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, it's just tragic. It was, it was tragic. Not yeah. that, um, it's not that I thought that they ever had a wonder, an amazing relationship, but um, they were together. They were together. Yeah. So. yeah. Do you think so. she went out of love for you? Ye- I think she went because I was, I was screaming <laughs> <laughs> to shut you up. Basically. Yeah, I think she did. Wow. Did yeah. she? Was she appreciative of it after it happened? I think she said, "Oh." N- now he thinks I'm beautiful. <laughs> oh, that's so funny! Wow. But I, it was it was a strange moment because it made her feel good. I could see that. All of these things that we're talking about, you know, we are all rushed through our lives, and to capture those poignant moments, like the one that you just said, where she walked into the room and he said, "You're so beautiful." And now, I mean, it's just, it's, these are the times of your life. I think that my mother used to say all the time that youth is wasted on the young. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand what she meant until now. You know, the, the last 10 years or so, I really fully appreciate and understand that. And I think that as a human being, I know myself, 
I really make every effort to live my every single one of my days of my life uh, in a very honorable and faithful way. And I make sure to touch the lives of my children who don't live with me anymore because those annoying children grew up and left me um, every day because I want to have them around me and I want to know that they're okay and I want to touch them every day. And my children get along with each other, which is a very uh, huge blessing. It's true. Huge blessing. I always tell my kids because they are very different from each other that be for each other and against me and your dad because you, you will have each other after we're long gone. Yeah. You know? I had children late uh, in life, so so I I feel the same way. I feel like the most important thing for me would be to know that they all supported each other. Yeah. You also have a wonderful family unit. I mean, you and your husband and your children are lovely. Thank you. Your, your little one is the is the, is the cutest thing. So what what kind of how old are your kids and what ages are they and. Uh, I have two girls. My oldest one is eleven, and my little one is eight. Oh, yeah. And, and you're then, you're raising them by yourself. Yeah, I'm a well. We co-parent. I, I have fifty percent custody, which for any mom out there who knows what that's like, <laughs> it's gut wrenching to have like part time custody of your kids. Um, they grow so fast. But yeah, I'm on my own when I have them, and they are brilliant. They really are. They are the key to my life, and. They are so excited to – the cutest thing in the world is that they're so supportive of what I'm doing right now. And, and look at the role model that mm-hmm. you are for them. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. If I can just spend one day being a good role model to them. Well, realizing your gifts is like a great role model. You know, like being being present to what you can do and mm-hmm. then trying to do it. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. I want to teach them to do what they love. Yeah. I want them to have happy, fulfilled lives. Yeah. yeah. It's great. So what's so the next step for you guys is to make the film, and um, which is going to be the play is only about I, my recollection is about seventy minutes long. It's about not. It's almost ninety. I think is it? Yeah. And how will the will the uh, script for the for the film mirror the play? Yes, it is very different because of course it's a different medium. The story is the same, but we get to take you different places with it. Mm-hmm. You know, different, different locations, scenes. different scenes, imagine new things. So, yeah, it's, ratchet up the emotion. Yeah, and and have a little bit of fun with with where we place our characters and the situations that they deal with because it's not all confined to one space. How are you raising person. money? We have been. How would you like our listeners to yes. help you raise money? <laughs> We have been doing a number of things. We did a uh, crowdfunder. Then we became um, affiliated with a 501c3, uh, which is a great way to raise money because any corporation can donate to us um, as a big tax write-off and you're supporting the arts. Um, We also have been courting investors who have a really nice piece of the pie at the end of the day. Um, Christine, you want to talk about this at all? I think you're covering it. Thanks. Well, tell me. I I don't actually know how you become a film producer as a 501c3. Can you talk about that a little bit so that our listeners understand? So we are affiliated with a company called From the Heart Productions, and they are set up as a 501c3. And basically the money comes in as a donation, and it's – You can write it off on your taxes for your corporation as a donation to the arts. And then through that, they they gave – 
they share their 501c3 status with our production company so that we're able to reap the benefits. So of this that. is a not-for-profit. So you're, you want to yeah. make this film and get it in the can and be done with it right. so that you now have a body of work that you can use to get your next film done. Correct. Yeah, and the Theoretically upside, make it easier to get the next one done. Yeah. Right. And the upside participation can be a tax-deductible donation or it can be participation on an equity basis yes. depending on how you choose to contribute to – Exactly. Yes. And private investing, yeah, is on an equity basis. So you have ownership in the film and um, lots of other. Yeah. So different lanes of Mm -hmm. participation. Correct. Yeah. How much money do you are you trying to raise? Um, We are working. I mean, it's a very small film. So we're working on a budget of about two hundred fifty thousand. We are at about one ten right now. We have about 110,000. So we have about 140 left to go. So you're going to both be uh, performing for free. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're volunteering. Your time. Um, yes. It, and that is just sort of the filmmaking process. Like yeah. talent almost always in these projects goes ahead. And How many shoot days? Them. 20. And you are going to be shooting on short days because you're going to be shooting in October. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. So we have we have a lot to get yeah. done. So you guys, you're trying to raise $250,000, which is a tax deduction, which is fantastic. And from that, um, how how do our listeners do that? How do they help you? You can find us um, on Instagram at uh, Before You Think Productions six four zero two. Follow us on Twitter at the letter B number four U Think Pro, or find us on Facebook at Before You Think Productions and. Contact us if you're interested in supporting us. We would love it. And if you are somebody who contributes to you through a crowdfunding platform, will they be able to have a screening of the film? Absolutely, yes. So part of your donation gets you tickets to the film? Yes. Theoretically? Yes. Okay. And a handy-dandy hat. And yes. a handy-dandy hat. We <laughs> yes. love our hats. We brought you two. Which, by oh, the way, wow. are very cute. We have them up on the counter. Oh, good. So yeah. this is a very exciting thing. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about this before we wrap this? Um, I would just quickly throw in that uh, – you know, these films come and go and, and people talk about, you know, their ideas a lot. But for us, the reason why we really wanted to get behind this film is because it's universal, absolutely universal. There's not a person in the world that can't relate to having a mother. The way we always plug it is it's a movie for anyone on the planet who has ever had a mother, mm-hmm. roughly everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much true. And That's what about awesome. you? Do you have anything else you want to add? I don't think so. I just want to say thank you. Wow. What a treat spending time with you too. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, you guys have have materialized and and created something and I just feel the energy that you're going to create more. And that excites me as much as anything because you're both endowed with everything you need to continue to create this stuff. And um, I can't wait to see it. It's very exciting. Thank you guys for coming. Really. Next on Say It Forward, Roy Bitten is an American piano and keyboard player best known as a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He has spent decades with Springsteen both in the studio and on tour. During the past decade alone, those tours have grossed more than $800 million, according to Billboard's Box Score archives. He's played to more than 8 million fans at more than 1,300 concerts. The Wrecking Ball Tour was one of the highest-grossing music tours of all time, playing to more than 3.5 million fans. Roy's also a producer in his own right, having produced Lucinda Williams' iconic album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. He's contributed to countless other albums, as well as producing Patti Smythe, Don Henley, Chicago, Dire Straits, Ian Hunter, 
Peter Gabriel, Stevie Nicks, David Bowie, Bonnie Tyler, Bob Seger, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, and Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell Tour. To complete this illustrious career, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the E Street Band in 2014. So join us when we find out what makes Roy so special and why the boss calls him the professor. When we rewind to the beginning with Roy Bitten on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 